0: You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past.
1: One of the things that I think people stopped saying about my writing at the point at which the Iranian threats emerged, you know, is that a lot of it is comic, you know, and one of the things not often
2: said about the satanic verses is that it's in large part a funny novel. Author Salman Rushdie, today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. born author Salman Rushdie was building a serious literary reputation in the 1980s his books had won several major prizes but it was his 1988 book the satanic verses that won him not accolades but a death sentence imposed by Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini Rushdie spent the next several years essentially in hiding with constant death threats hanging over him But gradually, he began to reemerge into the public, and by 2002, was actually doing author tours again. And that's when I first met and interviewed him. We talked about his nonfiction book called Step Across This Line. Now, for a little bit of historical context as well. This interview took place in October of 2002 in Washington, D.C., which, in October of 2002, was being terrorized by a sniper. That plays into this interview. And also, we were on the verge of again going to war in the Middle East, and Rushdie had some definite thoughts about that. So here now, from 2002, Salman Rushdie. The way it developed
1: for me was the book falls into these four sections, and I thought in the first section what I wanted to do was in a way leave the politics out of it. You know, it was was to have a first section which was just about my you know, my other interests, which are cultural and, you know, to do with movies and books and music and so on and so on, and just try and give that kind of a portrait of of my thinking and my ideas and views about things over this decade, you know. And then having, so to speak, introduced myself to the reader in, in that way, we could then plunge into this sort of dreadful tunnel which is what i call the plague years which is a section about the 10 almost ten, nine really 9 very bad years which were affected by the the khomeini fatwa against the satanic verses and uh, what and the implications of that not just not just political um but also personal you know what it was like mm-hmm. to live through those years you know from my from where i was sitting uh, so there's there's that and i hope in a way that one of the reasons for doing it was to sort of draw a line under it and to say, well, now uh, this is what it was like, now it's over, and if you ever want to know anything about it, here it is, <laughs> you know, the end. Um, and then the book comes out of that tunnel, and what I felt is I could, what I could then do was to use that experience and look outwards at the world you know and, and so the the third section deals with you know stuff that's been on all our minds in the last few years mm-hmm. and uh, and does it from the perspective of the particular experience that I'd had you know? and then there's a long summing up essay at the end which takes as its as its theme the theme of the the changing nature of the frontier in the modern world which is really in a way the underlying truth of, of everything that's been happening you know mm-hmm. The, the, the positive sides of that being the way in which cultures flow into each other in our great cities now, the way in which people move across the world mm-hmm. and make new lives. I mean, in a way, a very American idea. The idea of, the idea of um, you know, the, the migrant coming to make a country, mm-hmm. if you like. Um, that's been happening more than ever in human history in the last hundred years or so. But now, of course, there's an aspect of that which we see with great foreboding because one of the things about the open frontier is that somebody can fly a plane through it and hit a building you know so i wanted to discuss all that and that's how
0: i felt the book would have a shape the notion of living at a frontier almost informs everything that you've written in this book
1: yes the whole that's really what it's about and, and i think in a way it's because that's been the, the story given to me by my life you know what i mean i mean i was born in In 1947, in in India, just, I mean, eight weeks before the country was partitioned into the independent states of India and Pakistan. And the aftermath of that, dreadful partition riots, terrible massacres, you know, uh, and also just the division of one's family between the two countries, um, kind of informed my life as I was growing up. It was the big fact, you know, the partition. I came to England to, to go to school in, when I was 13 and a half uh, in the early, in 61, and almost immediately, I mean, really the first thing that happened was the building of the Berlin Wall. And there was another big fact, the Iron Curtain, the, the partition mm-hmm. of Europe, you know, that, that one had to deal with throughout that period. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, as I've known more about America, and of course the frontier in American history is a very important thing. You know, frontier; mm-hmm. It's been part of the self-definition. Uh, of the American mm-hmm. character, you know uh, and it's been seen as a romantic thing as as the frontier is a metaphor of possibility, you know the frontier is a thing beyond which lies the future mm-hmm. um, you know and so on um, and now, of course in in our modern age the in our very shrunken globalized world, you know frontiers have almost a very limited meaning, you know. Mm-hmm. And yet people have now become fearful of that and the frontier once again becomes like a fortress or people begin to think that the frontier needs to be fortified, you know, in order to keep dangers out. But the trouble of keeping day with with that idea is that seems to me the world is not going to unshrink, you know, mm-hmm. any time soon. And so we have to find a way of living... In this frontierless world, even though it is in many ways an alarming place to be,
0: well, is part of the idea of fortifying the frontier also reining in the freedoms, of the artistic, well, uh, artistic freedoms? Well, that's,
1: that's the danger, of course. The danger about the moment cultures or countries get defensive, uh, they start trying to limit things. You know, they, uh, and uh, uh, and of course, you know censorship and the limitation of artistic freedoms is a thing that often follows. You know, um, uh, and I think it's going to be in the next in the next years. You know, possibly the next generation. It's going to be a very big subject for all of us. The question of how you preserve not just artistic freedom but personal freedom mm-hmm. uh, at a time when people oh, feel fearful and as a result security and all that becomes a much bigger issue than it has been. Um, because the security mentality is always to silence things and to limit them and to shut mm. them down. And I think how sad it would be if these, these wonderfully free societies in which we're lucky enough to live should make
0: themselves less free in order to protect themselves. hmm well, you were clearly one target of that kind of mentality, but not the, on, not the first, not the only, no. and you have certainly not been the last. No, but the thing that I discovered, you see, is that
1: the characteristic in myself that I discovered, which perhaps got me through it, was bloody-mindedness. You know, that, that in mean, my view was I wasn't going to stop. You know, I wasn't going to cease to be myself because somebody was after me, you know, and I th- I hope that that's the, the point of view that everybody will now come to, you know, in, uh, given the fact that these are our problems we're all facing. You know, bloody mindedness
0: is a great gift. You have to remain yourself. You know, under these kinds of attack. well, as as you said in, in one of these essays, and forgive me, I I, I don't remember which one no, it was no. on which page. Okay. You said the way to fight terror. I'm, I'm probably paraphrasing you mm-hmm. badly too. Is to the way to fight terrorism is to refuse to be terrorized. Well,
1: that's you know, it's easy, easily said and not so easily done.
0: True, um,
1: but nevertheless very important. And and I think one of the things, you know, be I'm in New York a lot now, and and one of the things that I have been heartened by is the way in which New Yorkers in this in this one year. Um, Have have really come to that conclusion, you know, which is that yes The world is frightening. Yes. There's this terrible wound in the city, you know But that doesn't mean it's that New Yorkers are going to stop being New Yorkers, you know that they're And and what is interesting is how quickly they have regained Their sense of themselves how quickly the city has regained you could say it's groove, you know (laughs) Um, And the people are now going about their lives much as they did not in the kind of traditional way uh, people sometimes blame Americans for forgetting things. You know what I mean? This isn't a kind of forgetting. It isn't that it isn't that those terrible events have been forgotten. It's that people have agreed to live with the fact that the world is now like
2: this. But it isn't going to stop them having their lives. After this short break, Salman Rushdie poses a challenge to Islam. Back to my 2002 interview with Salman Rushdie.
0: Well, we are faced right now in the city that you're sitting in with a sniper who's out there. We don't know at this point if he's a terrorist, a lone nut, uh, another Timothy McVeigh type, but he has, in effect, terrorized a metropolitan area of eight million people. Yes,
1: it's. A, I mean, I agree. I think that the sniper story is a, is a particularly alarming one because the the unknown is always the most fear, fearsome mm-hmm. thing you know, when you don't know what's coming at you mm-hmm. or why mm-hmm. you know um, it's it's really horrifying I mean, just well I hope it doesn't last long is all I can say
0: but now now that I mentioned Timothy McVeigh in that breath it reminds me of a, another line that you mentioned in one of your essays which is that if the West must face it's Timothy McVeigh's Islam must face it's bin Laden's That's correct I and mean, I think it exactly the way in which you know, people went, have been to some trouble to try and
1: understand the kind of mentality out of which uh, the kind of militia fanatic, uh, the the, the Obama character, the McVeigh character, you know, wh- what breeds those personalities and why. I think a lot of work has been done on that. A lot of, you know, people have put their mind to trying to understand that phenomenon in this country. What seems to me to be to need to happen inside the Islamic world is that people need to, sh- to discuss why it is that that their religion which is you know frankly no more or less prone to violence than any other religion but why does it breed at this moment in history so many violent strains you know and I think In the end, you see, my view is that the only way the war against terror is so-called is going to be won, is when Muslim societies themselves reject the 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 fanatical strand in their midst. You know, in the end, they're the ones who are going to have to stop it. You know, in the way that you can see now beginning to happen, in some of the countries where the fanatics have been in charge longest. So in Iran, for example. You know, the the population of Iran now absolutely detests the rule Mm -hmm. of the mullahs and will no doubt at some point be able to get rid of them, but would get rid of them today if it could. Mm -hmm. So that's what needs to happen. There needs to be a wholesale cultural rejection of that kind of fanaticism inside
0: Muslim societies. But can they separate that task from this anti-Americanism that roils under the surface?
1: Well, they're going to have to, you know, because in the end, what's happening is that the fanatical radical project is damaging their own societies. You know, and it's, it's these are societies, most, if you look around the Muslim world, these are societies in decline. You know they are they are culturally backsliding. They are economically you know almost all of them basket cases. Um, these are these are countries which have failed to move forward at the speed that the modern world is moving forward. They have failed to adapt to the challenges of the modern. Um, you know and as a result some of them, for many of them, the modern itself becomes the enemy. You know uh, you destroy what you can't have.
0: You wrote very passionately recently in an essay, which unfortunately is not in this particular volume, but it was, I think, in the Washington Post, about the the impending U.S. attack on Iraq and why this might be very ill-thought-out. I, I mean, I have
1: great concerns about it, you know, and many of them are now. I'm, I'm interested to see how many of those are now being more generally voiced. I mean, I think, you know, there was an initial... Uh, inclination to go along with the government, you know, and, and, uh, and, and now I think people are very genuinely concerned by what would be the aftermath of such mm-hmm. an attack. You know, from my point of view, getting rid of Saddam Hussein militarily, that appears to be not that difficult, you know, for the most powerful nation in the world mm-hmm. if it chooses to use its military might. Um, The problem is then what you know Iraq is a very unstable always has been an unstable country It has you know a Sunni Sunni Shia Muslim split. It has the Kurdish separatist movement, you know um, What is the plan for after the removal of Saddam Hussein and we haven't really heard? What that might be and I think there's another big problem, which is that right now it seems to me We haven't finished the previous with the previous act. Mm -hmm. You know, Al-Qaeda is still out there. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, its ability to act has been damaged. You know, its leaders are still loose. Um, And up till now, the United States has been receiving a lot of help from the intelligence services of a lot of Muslim countries around the world Mm -hmm. in trying to round up Al-Qaeda members. in the in the aftermath of an attack on Iraq it's quite possible that it would lose a lot of that cooperation from the muslim world and therefore what seems to me to be the main job and the unfinished job which is to deal with this with this very powerful terrorist organization that would actually be damaged by this attack
2: mm.
0: Now, if I may shift gears, just we only have a couple moments left, but I didn't want to let you get away without asking you also about the essay that you have earlier in the book about the future of the novel. We're talking yeah. about the, the art form that has the novel has long since been declared dead over many decades yes. by various writers. It, it, are all these obituaries meaningless? Yes, I mean, is, yes,
1: absolutely meaningless. I mean, it seems to me that you know, the, the death of the novel has been announced almost since the birth of the novel. You know, I mean, the Iliad got bad reviews. <laughs> 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 um, and I think, if, actually, if you just look around the United States at the moment, I think there's a incredibly encouraging signs of life. I and mean, there's a lot of young writers, mm-hmm. some of them disgracefully young, um, doing amazingly good work. I mean, if you think just in the last two or three years, a writer like Jonathan Safran Foer, Everything is Illuminated, the, the new novel of Jeffrey Eugenides, Middlesex, mm-hmm. uh, you know, wonderful follow-up to The Virgin Suicides. I mean, I think there are, there, there's so many gifted writers around and continued, continuing to emerge. I think the
0: novel is in rude good health. It may not look exactly like what we were, would traditionally think of as a novel, no but the novel has always changed the novel is the most
1: metamorphic of forms you know and it's one of the th- it's actually one of the reasons why it does survive it's a form that is able to shift and change as the world shifts and changes you know so in the days when people had the leisure to read three volume gigantic novels there were plenty of three volume gigantic novels you know in the days when people liked to read um you know, novels written in the form of letters, There were epistolary novels, you know. Um, in the days when people, you know, in our times, people have different appetites, different tastes, the novel moves to fit. You know, and I think actually it is one of the great arts of the novelist to try and find the way of writing which reflects the age in which he lives. You know, and, and that's that's why the novel survives.
0: And these days, if we want great fiction, there's always political autobiographies. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, the, one of the things that I think people stopped saying about
1: my writing at the point at which the the Iranian threats emerged, you know, is that a lot of it is comic. You know, and one of the things not often said about the satanic verses is that it's in large part a funny novel, you know, Um, and I hope that one of the things that people will will find in even in this book of essays is that there's a lot of comedy in it. I mean, some of it is political satire. I mean, there's a kind of comic verse mm-hmm. about the presidential inauguration in the style <laughs> of Dr. Seuss, um, and you know, there's comedy, comic material relating to the past, relating to my sort of disgraceful youth in the in London in the swinging 60s, and you know. But I think, on the whole, the thing I've tried to regain is that public consciousness of me as a, as an essentially funny writer, you know. And uh, so I, I, I hope this book will be a part of that rediscovery, let's say.
2: Salman Rushdie is 76 now. One year ago this weekend, he was attacked on stage at a lecture event in New York, seriously injured. His attacker was arrested and has been charged with attempted murder. The government of Iran has denied any involvement. And you can get a copy of Step Across This Line by Salman Rushdie by following the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. And that's where you'll find my interviews with two other authors who know a thing or two about having controversial books. You may have heard recently that there was a school district in Florida that banned books by Jody Pico. Well, you can hear my 2004 interview with Jody Pico.
0: Everyone is a hero in this book, and everyone's a villain, which is, I think, the way it pretty much is in real life, too. You know, we want to blame someone.
2: And my 1991 conversation with a man whose graphic novel, Mouse has been listed on many banned books list, Art Spiegelman.
1: I didn't realize it was going to be so shocking when I was working on it. It wasn't like I had a high concept. On the other hand, I realized that if I was outside of this and somebody was telling me, I just heard about this comic book, it's about the Holocaust, and it uses animals to tell the story, I'd go, oh, geez, we've reached some new lows here, you know.
2: And, of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you know where you can find us, don't you? Every major podcast platform. Please subscribe today if you haven't already. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, we're going to take you back to the radical 1960s when bombs were being tossed and demonstrations were going on. My 2007 interview with former Weather Underground member and subsequent fugitive, kathy wilkerson
1: there was a bombing a day going on it was very very common the rage represented everybody but that particular tactic we couldn't go down that road with half-baked thoughts and romantic illusions
2: that's next time on now i've heard everything i'm bill thompson